right. Uh, super excited. Glad to have a relational connection with these folks already. So really cool. Also glad to hear that I'm not the only person who refers to time in the same categories as the Muppets. Like only only twelve more sleeps till Christmas. Anyway, um, Muppet Christmas Carol. One of my top faves. Hey, so Christmas is here. It's, uh, it's like almost here. Twelve more sleeps till Christmas. Five more sleeps till Force Awakens. Who's ready for that? Uh, so pumped. So pumped. Got my ticket. Cinetopia. Ready to roll. Well, um, so Christmas time for, uh, for my family has always been about all kinds of kind of traditions, but a big tradition for us is just films. We love movies, and you know whether it's the new movies that are coming out in December or it's the classic movies that uh, generations have loved, like uh, It's a Wonderful Life with Jimmy Stewart and things like that. And Merry Christmas, you old building alone. Like it's wonderful. You, like you can't go wrong with that movie. And uh, and <clears throat> anyways, as a kid who grew up in uh, the 80s and 90s, like the great Christmas. New movie release for me as a kid was Home Alone. Like, who's in on loving Home Alone? Yeah. So, uh, Home Alone, in case you don't remember, it is about eight year old Kevin McAllister who lives in the uh, Chicago suburbs. And, uh, and he is left by his family in a rush to get to the airport to fly to Paris for Christmas. And if you find it incredulous that a family could leave a child behind, you can just talk to Pastor Dave. He's got a story for you last week. So, um, so Kevin, Kevin McAllister is left by his family, and he's left to fend for himself against the uh, ill-fated burglars, Harry and Marv, also known as the Wet Bandits. You can remember them. And, uh, you know, Home Alone is definitely no It's a Wonderful Life, but it is fun. And, you know, I mean, it's fun in that kind of way that an eight-year-old is as smart as Rube Goldberg. And uh, anyway... Okay, that one didn't go as well as first service, so I'm done. I'm done with jokes for a little while. But there is uh, this one scene in Home Alone where uh, Kevin is is starting to realize that he misses his family. Like he was really glad to see them gone. Like it was like his Christmas wish came true when nobody else was in the house. But finally, he starts to realize that he misses his family, and he's walking through this Chicago neighborhood, and he looks in the window of a family that, you know, there's warmth and joy, and everybody's kind of loving each other and exchanging gifts and eating, and and he begins to realize his longing for what he's been given, but that he's taken for granted. And so he he's on the outside of joy and warmth, and he's tasting it, he's looking in, and he's longing for it. And... And this picture for me uh, illustrates something important about the way joy works in our lives. Um, Joy is something we either have or we have a taste of, but when we have a taste of it, it only increases our longing for it all the more. C.S. Lewis uh, remarked that if someone has an experience of joy, has a longing that is joy, they will prefer it uh, to any other pleasure. And this month, we are looking through this uh, Old Testament book of Isaiah, and we're looking at these, these snapshots, these portraits, if you will, of the Messiah and his kingdom that he brings. That he's bringing a kingdom without end, and, it, and in this kingdom, there are these realities, the realities we long for, realities like peace and love and joy and hope. And he brings these realities without end, uh, realities like joy. And the human heart is hardwired for joy. Like, we, we long for joy. We need joy. It's part of 
how we are. And every person and every culture develops strategies for achieving joy and getting joy. Uh, you might not know that you have a strategy, but you have a strategy. Uh, and so uh, in traditional cultures, uh, people would strategize for joy uh, to, in a sense of fulfilling the role that's been assigned to you. Be a good husband, be a good wife, be a good employee. Fill the role that society has given you, and then your life will be full and joyful. Uh, modern, Western, contemporary societies tend to be less traditional, less about roles, and more about the individual. And uh, you'll get joy if you can find your deepest desire and then express it freely without anybody inhibiting you. And then there's always the cynical strategy. This is the person uh, or group that has realized that all the things they want out of life, the world is not offering. And they, they can look in at the traditional or even the, the modern attempts and strategies for joy and they will just criticize them because they can look through it and deconstruct it and, and tell you why all of your reasons for being joyful are just wrong and uh, pointless. And so there's the traditional and the contemporary as well as the cynical strategy. But when our strategy for finding joy stops working, uh, where do we go? Where do we go to find joy without end? When joy is elusive in our lives, how do we ultimately fill the vacuum that is created by an absence of lasting joy? When our vision of joy shows itself to be faulty, what we need is not to try harder, but to find a new and better vision of joy. And this is what is offered by Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 25. He shows us a vision of lasting joy, of better joy. And with that vision comes a better strategy. So if you have a Bible, turn it open to Isaiah chapter 25. We're going to take a look at this picture of joy without end. So this is uh, what God's word says here. He says, Verse 6, Isaiah 25, verse 6, he says, On this mountain, Yahweh Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. The sovereign Yahweh will wipe away... Oh, sorry, I missed... Yep, he will swallow up death forever. Important line. Sorry, I skipped it. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Yahweh will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord Yahweh has spoken. In that day, they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is Yahweh. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. It's three things I want to show you from this text today. That, that first of all, where is joy located? So what, what, where's the location of joy? The second thing is uh, what joy is, and then ultimately what's the result of joy? So where's joy located? Where do we find it? Uh, the text says, on this mountain, uh, he, God, will destroy, or actually more literally, swallow. The ESV translates it as swallow. It's like to absorb the shroud that enfolds the peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. So this is future tense language. This is a thing that God will do. Um, I was up 
during the night with lots of people who had tears uh, over all kinds of bad dreams and other issues. And so tears have not been wiped away from all faces yet. Right? This, is, this is still to come. This is not yet. Um, also, it says that in that day, we will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. That's past tense. That's present stuff. Right? And so where is joy located? Where is it to be found? Two places, really. Actually, two dimensions. Uh, now and not yet. You can find joy in the present as well as in the future. So in that day is a phrase often used in uh, the, the prophetic literature of the Bible uh, to mean this coming day of the Lord, uh, where Yahweh at last becomes king. Um, it was customary in the ancient Near East to have an inaugural coronation banquet. When a king took the throne, there would be a great feast, a banquet. And so this is something akin to what we're getting here, that when God becomes king and death is swallowed up, there's a great celebration. It's a feast where Yahweh will prepare for the people uh, this, this great, exuberant, joyful celebration. But it isn't here yet, because the central uh, reason for the celebration has to do with God swallowing the shroud that enfolds all the peoples. And so, uh, and by the way, the, the people here are not just Israel, but it, it, the Greek translation of the Old Testament translates this word peoples to ethnos. It's the same word that's used in Matthew 28 when Jesus says, go into all the world and make disciples of all Ethnos, nations, of all types of people, all people groups. And so this shroud that enfolds all the people groups is death. Everyone dies, everyone subject to it. There is no getting away from it. But this great celebration that God, where God swallows up death and destroys the destroyer of life and dries up tears is something that is still to come. And this is important for us to grasp. Uh, this is very important to us to grasp that joy is actually located ahead of us. That there is joy and it has something to do with the future. Because one of the great lies that our world often believes is that all we actually have is today. This is one of the great lies that fuels a whole lot of um, really stupid purchases, actually. Right? All you have is right now, like before the sale ends. And so uh, this is... Uh, this was seen in Isaiah 22. In his own day, uh, the people were saying things like, let us eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we may... Yeah, Dave Matthews covered that. And, uh, <laughs> right? Which, thank God we haven't heard from him lately. I don't know. Anyway, so that's just, it's not my style. Sorry, some wrong comment. Ignore that. Um, so eat, let's, let's just eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we might die. Like this, this was, the, the, in the ancient world, the philosophy known as Epicureanism. In, in the modern world, it's known as everyday life in Portland. Okay? Like, you, you want joy? Like, get your microbrew. Like, go get some great tapas at a restaurant, have artisanal coffee, buy some mid-modern furniture, and you are set for joy. By the way, I love all of those things, but that's not where joy is located, is it? And so, in other words, it's a way of life that says basically happiness is only really about now. It's a right now thing. And this is why we're constantly plagued by the perceived need of instant gratification. There's no telling what tomorrow holds, so I better avoid as much pain as possible and pursue as much pleasure as I can in the moment. 
This is not the picture of joy in Isaiah. He has a much more dynamic, multidimensional picture of joy. Uh, In other words, what Isaiah is saying is this. He's saying, look, you want joy, it has to be sourced from the future. Joy has to be sourced from the future. What, like, what do I mean by joy has to be sourced from the future? Do I mean like you have to have a flux capacitor, be friends with Dr. Emmett Brown? No. Um, ha- have you ever planned a trip? Right? You, you planned a trip, you bought your airplane tickets maybe, you've got your hotel already reserved, and, and you're ready to go. And how, does, how, how, do you, how can you handle another day at the office? Right? Another day of sorting laundry. Because you know, really soon, you're getting on that airplane, right? It's coming. The future is sourcing the present with excitement and anticipation, right? Like, this is happening for us. On Saturday, we're piecing out of here, and we're driving to San Diego, and I can handle another day of rain, because soon we will celebrate in the sunshine with real carne asada. And it will be a thing of beauty, right? Uh, And we're going to drive down and see Lauren's family for Christmas, which will be fun. And so the future is sourcing the present with joy. And so forget living with a joy that has no end if you aren't living in a story that has a solid future. And I'm not talking about a solid future financially or romantically. Those are the world's best offers for joy. But those fade and they disappear and things change and money runs out and those people that you put all your joy in start to drive you nuts and We actually need a future that's much more solid. And that's exactly what we see in this banquet. And this is how it plays out in Isaiah 25. It says, On this mountain, Yahweh will swallow the shroud that enfolds all the peoples. He'll swallow up death forever. So where's this mountain? It's talking about Zion or Jerusalem, which is exactly where we see Jesus crucified and risen. This is exactly the language Paul says is true of Jesus Christ. That he is the one who swallows up death forever. In other words, the thing that is meant to describe what God alone does is the thing Paul says Jesus has done in his resurrection. In other words, that Jesus in his resurrection has overcome death once and for all. That death is a comma now instead of a period in the sentence of world history. This is a big deal. That death is no longer something that has the final word on creation. The resurrection of Jesus is in fact the preview of the rest of the movie. Paul says that Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of what's to come. That new creation is bursting forth because we've already seen Jesus come out of the tomb alive and whole. Amen? Amen. This is good. I know it's Christmas, but we can also celebrate Easter themes, too. So We can celebrate that because God became human in Jesus in the Incarnation. So how can we live a joyfully exuberant life if all you have is your present circumstances? If that's your story, then guess what? Death just comes along and says, it doesn't matter how hard you worked. It doesn't matter uh, how high you got in the organization. It doesn't matter how much fun you had or how deeply you felt alive because now you're just dead. You're not mostly dead, you're all dead. And so (laughs) one commentator that I read this week said this, and I found this super helpful. Let me read this to you and follow along with me. He says, this passage has one of the clearest teachings on the resurrection in the Old Testament. And as such, it speaks to the greatest issue in the modern world, the issue of death. 
Given the insistence today that this world and this life are all there is, death makes a mockery of the whole thing. All our achievements and accomplishments, all our struggles and pain are meaningless because we all die. The saint and the sinner, the winner and the loser together. Death takes away the possibility of individual human significance. The only alternative is to say that humanity will go on after I die and that therefore I have some significance as a part of the race. But that is my only significance and a very small one. Uh, he goes on in actually a different commentary to say this. That this is the ultimate deliverance. We may be delivered from want and from oppression, but until we are delivered from death and the sin which issues in death, all these other deliverances are a mockery. Death is the final conqueror. Are you with me? Wow. And so Isaiah is saying that the joy of God's kingdom is a joy that lasts because he's swallowed up in that sense that God has absorbed into himself death in his own person. See, he lives the life we should have lived. He dies the death we should die so that we can have his resurrection life with him. He earns us a seat at the table by eradicating the ultimate barrier to that relationship. And he defeats the greatest single force in the world that can rob us of joy. And so there is a future dimension to joy. But Jesus has already risen. The great preview has shown, and the film is underway. The, the preview of what will happen has already been experienced. And so there's a present dimension to our joy. Isaiah describes people who... In the day of God's coming as king, they're saying, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. Let us rejoice and be glad in him. And so the New Testament message is that the kingdom of God has arrived. It's come. It's here now. And it's still to come. It's inaugurated. It started. But it isn't all here. And so Jesus' resurrection launches this new creation, but until the fullness of that day arrives, we have the down payment. A down payment is the thing where you say, hey, here's, here's some money, I'm good for the rest, I'll pay you later, but not now. And so Paul says of the Holy Spirit, he says that God has set his seal of ownership on us in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, and he has put his spirit into our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. It's the down payment that God says, my spirit alive in you, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is at work in you, Ephesians chapter 1. And he says, so live a life of exuberant joy because the joy that's to come is already at work in you now. And so this is something that we can live now, not just later. Now, some of you are here today and you think, really, all I have is today. You're tempted to think that your joy is only right now and not later. You need to live in a story with the future. Believe that the gospel promises you eternal future. But some of you are here today and you're tempted to say that it's a good thing I'm going to have joy later, but I'm going to go on and keep being grumpy now. Right? Right? You've got to live in the story that has the down payment because there's already joy at work in you. The Spirit of God who bears fruit, the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. On and on the list goes. You need a story where you realize that your hero's already come and he meets you and he walks with you. The question is, which story are you living? Which story are we living? Are you living the story that has both a future and present dimension of joy? 
Because that's what Jesus came to offer you. He says it in John 16 where he says, my, I, I say these things so that my joy may be in you. So that your joy may be complete. So that's where joy is located. It's here now and it's not yet. But what is it? What are we talking about when we talk about joy? Let's look at the picture. It says, on this mountain, and this is 25.6, on this mountain, Yahweh of hosts will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples. A banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, the finest of wines. Excuse me. So first of all, joy is not primarily something you and I manufacture. It's actually something God gives. It's something he does. It's something that he is. And so he's the one who prepares it. A great deal of our lack of joy, friends, is the fact that we try to manufacture it. And that's most of our strategies are coming up with joy ourselves. If I could just get this, if I could just arrive here, I would have joy. But joy isn't something we can manufacture. It has to be something God gives. And, and hear this definition of joy. Joy is a constant celebrating and appreciating what God has done. It's not something that we make. C.S. Lewis talks about this in his own story, in, in his, his book, Surprised by Joy. He describes joy as an unsatisfied desire, which itself is more desirable than any other satisfaction. And he, he distinguishes joy from happiness and a regular pleasure. He says this, he says, Joy, in my sense, has indeed one characteristic and one only in common with them, that is happiness and pleasure. He says that that is the fact that anyone who has experienced it will want it again. I doubt whether anyone who has tasted it would ever, if both were in his power, exchange it for all the pleasures in the world. But then joy is never in our power, and pleasure often is. See, joy is never in our power, but pleasure often is. Because the things that we do to achieve joy are tenuous. They can be toppled, right? But the things God does are forever. They're eternal. Joy is this ongoing celebration of the things that God has done and will last forever. A relationship with him and the hope of a new creation. In other words, joy is a direct result of grace. And so this is why Paul can say in Philippians chapter 4, to rejoice in the Lord always. And he says, I'll say it again, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. And, and we can do it always because our rejoicing isn't in right now. And right now only. We're not just rejoicing in my finances. Those run out. We're not just rejoicing in the fact that you have cute kids. They, they get not cute. Right? <laughs> We're not just re rejoicing in, the thing, in, in something going well for you because tomorrow might not go so well for you. And so he says, we're rejoicing in the Lord. Not in my success and not in something else, but in the Lord. It's in what he supplies to me. It's in celebrating what he's done and appreciating who he is. And so joy... Is that it's something God gives, but it's also this. We see this in the picture that joy is available for all people. It's not just a select group. This is this picture where he says, "On this mountain, I'll prepare for all peoples, all types of people, all nations," which is significant because in the previous about ten chapters, God has been judging all the nations. He's been talking about how horrible their sin is and what He's going to do to bring judgment. And yet, at the end, He's inviting every nation, every type of person. And so, let me just say this because I've been here for about twelve years, and I know some of you in the way you think, and. Some of you are here today and you're thinking, you know, I'm just not a very joyful person. That's really not my personality. It's not my thing to be joyful. I'm glad that's your thing. You keep smiling. That's not me. It's not my personality. All right? 
last time checked, biblically, joy isn't a function of your personality. Joy is a function of the Spirit of God alive in you. It's not really an option. It's a fruit of the Spirit, right? So stop thinking like, I'm just kind of not a joyful type of person. But all types of people are potentially joyful types of people. And that's the point. So Isaiah envisions a day where it's not just one select ethnic group, but it's all people, all types of people. Also this, joy is a party. You get that? I mean, like, look at the picture. It's a huge feast, rich foods, great wine. It is a picture of a party. Joy is being expressed in eating and drinking. I mean, think about it. When you have a celebration, right? you don't want to run out of food. You go to a wedding. The weddings that really stink are the ones where it's like, oh, we got a cracker with some weird cheese on it. And it's like not even the good cheese, right? And that's it. This isn't a party. And so you want food because that's how we celebrate. And so joy has far... Let me just say this. This is why that dimension of joy matters. Because joy isn't just knowing facts. Joy isn't just, I know all the right answers. It's not intellectual only. See, joy is, has to do with a deep sense on the heart of lasting gladness. And so the only way to compare joy is to compare it to a great feast with rich wines and great food. It's something that has taste. There's something subjective about it. It's not just objective facts. It's subjective experience. This is why we just sang, right? Like, we want to experience the goodness of your glory because joy is also something we experience, we step into and participate in. Which means that joy grows in you and it takes time. Aged wine doesn't happen overnight, have you noticed? Right? Joyful, joyful lives are also born through a process. It's like living as a connoisseur of the presence of God. We become connoisseurs of the work of God. And we, we acquire a taste for who he is and the way he works in the everyday dimensions of life. And that is a joyful person. The person who's a connoisseur of the work of God. See, joy is something... That is a result also, not just of something, it's not just something he gives or something that's available to all in a celebration that lasts, but it's also something, a result of having a place at his table. This is maybe the most important aspect of this, this point this morning. That he hasn't just saved us from death. God isn't just in, interested in saving you out of death. He is interested in inviting you to his table. He wants relationship with you. He's reserved a spot for you. How good does it feel when you show up somewhere and somebody's been like, you know, and you're late, which may happen occasionally to me, um, and somebody says, I saved the seat for you. That kind of, it's pretty sweet, right? It's like, oh, you thought of me ahead of time. I matter as an individual to you. And so this is what God's saying. Jesus says it in John 14. I go to prepare a place for you in the presence of the Holy One who loves you. I'd suggest to you that a great deal of our uh, joy anemia, our lack of joy, has to do with not truly grasping that we have a place at the table. A great deal of our grumbling is a result of longing for a place at the table but not believing it's ours. This is the inner life of a grumbling person. When I talk about the inner life of a grumbling person as somebody who thinks, I I probably don't have a place at the table. In all kinds of ways, like, we'll probably run out of money, our life's over. Or, yeah, I'm doing all this work, but I'm not getting any credit for it. 
So, oh, man, I probably won't be provided for. I probably won't be recognized. Or we think, I, I spend all these hours doing things for other people, but nobody's serving me. Nobody's seeing my needs. I don't have any affection. Right? And so our, our need for provision, our need for recognition, our need for affection, those are met in the kingdom at the Lord's table where he says, in my kingdom I've provided all you need. Seek my kingdom first and all the things you're tempted to worry about will be given to you. In my kingdom I've called you by name. I see you for who you are and I recognize you and want you. In my kingdom you have all my affection. Look no further than the palms of my hands. And so this picture of feasting really turns the life of a grumbler upside down. It's celebration and gladness and abundance and exuberance and it's offered to us freely. It means living in constant communion with the one who calls us to a relationship with himself. But I got to tell you, like this happened to me this week where my wife called me out on more than one occasion and said, Matt, like what's going on with you? You're, you're, you're grumpy. Like you're, you're snappy with me. Like you're defensive when you don't need to be. And I said, no, I'm not. What are you talking about? I'm fine. What's really going on? Is everything really okay? I'm like, yeah, everything's fine. Joyful. Preaching on joy. I don't know know what you're talking about. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. So so she sent me off on this rabbit trail of looking in for a second and going, okay, why am I responding this way? Like She's dealing with objective data. So what's happening on the inside? And, And I had to come to terms with the fact that really... What had been going on was nothing serious relationally, nothing serious circumstantially, but it was the slow uh, neglect of spiritual disciplines in my life over the last couple weeks, where, where I really hadn't been disciplined in prayer. I really hadn't been focused on reading the word to connect the dots for me. I wanted to connect some for you guys. So I'm preaching on joy here. And God goes, hey, you've got to connect some dots for you too. You have a place at my table. And all the things you're worried about and snappy about are just evidence that you don't believe that I'll take care of the things that you're worried about. You have a place at my table, son. It's beautiful, right? So you repent and you move on, right? Because ultimately, joy is a result of cultivating a relationship with the one who gives joy. And we need time and attention for it. So that's what joy is. It's something that's here now and not yet. It's something that is ultimately born of relationship. But what does it do? What's the result of joy? What happens when we have it? Well, uh, look at the text. At the end of uh, this this particular flow of thought in Isaiah, verse 9, it says, This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Notice this isn't just a personal expression of joy. It's a communal expression of joy. In other words, joy is a contagious thing. Joy might even be more contagious than the cold that I got from the office, right? And so joy is a contagious thing. And it isn't just my joy, but it's our joy. Let us rejoice. We see this imagery of a banquet, and it's amplified further into Isaiah chapter 55. After we've seen the servant who suffers on our behalf to accomplish joy and earn our place at the table on our behalf... And God says, come, all who are thirsty, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what's good and you will delight in the richest of fare. 
See, there's an invitational posture to God's joy. He wants all in on it. And so joy isn't just for us to have for our own good. It's ultimately for the good of the rest of the world. And this theme of feasting, of banquets, of parties around food is a theme all throughout Scripture. And Jesus picks it up. Not only does he dine with all kinds of people, but he teaches on the nature of his reign and his rule, the kingdom of God, and he compares it to a great feast. He says this in Matthew 22. Jesus, speaking to them again in a parable, said, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who have been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. This is a picture of Jesus coming to Israel, inviting them to partake in the kingdom, and the rejection of the Messiah. So he goes on and he says this in verse 8. So then he told his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people that they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. So on one hand, God's joy is going to be celebrated. Get in on it. But on the other hand, when you're a servant of the king, you you go to the ends of the earth to bring people in on your joy. You, you, You express joy and you invite people into joy. If you know the joy of the Father, if you're prepared for the ultimate wedding, the wedding of heaven and earth because of the cross of Jesus where he's removed the barrier to our relationship with God, then you know the joy of your heavenly Father and you can say, this is our God, he's saved us. And you, and you have this kind of joy, then you're free to truly be a blessing to people rather than focus totally on yourself. So you're free to love without strings attached. You don't have to be stuck complaining about all the things that are wrong because ultimately you know the power of what it means to be made right. And so joy in us releases the church to bear witness to the joy of our Father's kingdom. And some of, I mean, and we did this, right? Like you guys got like 500 welcome boxes in a week and a half, like rad. So it's one thing to rejoice communally, but it's another thing to cultivate joy as an individual. And one of the things I I have to say I think is one of the greatest barriers to the church faithfully living out its mission in the world isn't so much who's in office or what people think is permissible or not permissible or whether or not somebody greets you with happy holidays or Merry Christmas. Like those external barriers, that's just the world being the world. What's the real problem? It's usually not the world, it's in us. And the greatest obstacle for the church living effectively on mission And bearing witness to the kingdom is a lack of joy in God's people. Who wants to go to a party where nobody's partying? (laughs) Who wants to celebrate with people who aren't celebrating? Who wants to come and just feel bad about life? (laughs) Nobody. So what kind of transparent witness do we bear when we lack joy? unfaithful representation of the kingdom of God. And so, friends, we're responsible if you don't have joy to cultivate joy for the good of the world because we are called to be like the servants who who go to the the good and the bad and say, you've got to get in on this joy. You want impact? 
in your work and in your neighborhood, live a joyful life. You live a joyful life by knowing where your joy is located. It's certain in the future and it's real in the present. You live a joyful life by knowing what it is. It's a celebration of what God's provided for you. And you're the kind of servant then who goes where the king sends you. And you're happy to bring any and all into the kingdom because there's seats enough for all. So how do we do it? Well, we need to start with a real celebration right here. Celebrate it by going to the table and remembering again the, the cost God has spent on the meal. And remembering that he gives it freely, that as real as his bread and juice are, is how real the new creation will be and the joy in it. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you know the joy of him taking your place taking on your sorrow and offering you his joy, then you can come to the table this morning remembering his great act of love and anticipating the ultimate feast and celebration. John, in his revelation, says that the wedding of the Lamb has come, the Lamb who is slain for the sins of the world, Jesus, and his bride has made herself ready. He says, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Let's go to the table this morning joyfully remembering where our joy is sourced from and where our story is headed. And before you come this morning, let me, let me ask you to just pause. Jerry and the band are going to come up and they're going to play, but would you just like take a moment and just go before the Lord and ask, where is my greatest obstacle to joy right now? Where do I have an obstacle to joy? And then would you just maybe write down three ways, three reasons you have for joy that aren't tied immediately to your circumstances but are bigger than what's happening to you. And then we come to the table when you're ready and take the bread and the cup when you're ready on your own as a celebration and an anticipation of the joy we have coming. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for giving up your life so that we could share in your life. We thank you for your kingdom and the the shape of your kingdom, that it is shaped by joy. So we remember that and we anticipate it and we ask that your spirit would make, make us people who are abundantly joyful and bear witness to the goodness of your kingdom. Pray this in the name of the Son. Amen.